Hello and welcome to Starting Small. Before we get into the interview, I want to share a little bit on how this interview happened. So I was in New York City last week working with one of the doctors I work with and being in the talks with Peter Tuckman for a while, I was working out of a coffee shop and decided to reach out to see what the availability was on his end. Uh, he got back to me and accepted to do an interview. This is a one day turnaround. When I went to New York, this interview was not planned and he kindly accepted to meet on Wall Street the next day to complete this interview. Being a huge fan of Peter's and his work on the stock exchange, I wanted to hear a little bit more about his upbringing and his journey to how he got to where he is so I can share it with you guys. So I hope you guys enjoy this and make sure to share your thoughts. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Peter Tuckman, quoted as the most photographed man on Wall Street. Listen as Peter shares stories from his upbringing, journey to landing a spot at the New York Stock Exchange, and advice to investors at home. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Peter Tuckman. The smallest broker in the world. <laughs> Tiny traders, what they call me. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to do this. It really means My a lot. My pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. So to start out, let's go back to your childhood. So where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? So I grew up in New York City. Uh, my childhood was spectacular in a lot of different ways. It's important to note that my parents are Eastern European Jews. They spent four years in concentration camps. Most of their family were exterminated during the war, killed. My, mother's, my father's mother was murdered actually by a Gestapo. My mother lost 72 people in her family and she was put up against uh, uh, Dr. Mengele at, in Auschwitz, who was the doctor of death. Wow. So they had, they experienced, they had an amazing upbringing. Their families were very successful and prosperous. They had very strong, strong families. Obviously the war broke out and the whole generation and family were decimated. They wow. met each other in a, in a, um, in, in a uh, displaced persons camp after the war both having grew up in different places, one in Czechoslovakia, one in Poland. They fell in love, they came to America, searching for the American dream. They had found each other and they, there was love at first sight, so it's a really fun love story that way. They came to the States. My father was the first Jewish student uh, allowed in a German medical school after the war wow. and um, came here already as a doctor and, uh, and um, became a very famous doctor. He was an incredible person. They, they were married for 66 years. Wow. They lived into their 90s. My father, 97, my mother, 93. And so that's my background. So my background is about family, about education, about art, uh, about unconditional love, and uh, about um, the human element and kindness in a kind of way. Them having experienced what they had gone through, most people came out of that experience in sort of a dark negative, sort of a, a, um, a fatalistic approach to life. They were fortunate enough to sort of take the other flip side as we know that life is how you look at it, cup half empty, cup half full. They sort of found each other, found this American dream, came here. And so for them, they felt that this was really a gift, that life was a gift, that having, you know, creating a family and, and connecting to other people Right, the human element of life, Definitely. you know, was was their passion, their drive, and their message. So I was lucky enough to have that as my 
foundation. And I think it's really had a lot to do with the trajectory of my life. And, you know, and I've, look, I've had my ups and I've had my, my, uh, my ups and, and, and downs. So it's just a matter of, you know, getting up every day and, and fighting. So that was my upbringing. I grew up in New York City. I, have a, I had a brother. He unfortunately passed away. Um, very privileged uh, beginning, although my parents, you know, came here in 1950. I was born in 57, so they were, he was a doctor already, but, the, you know, they did not have a lot of money in, in the beginning. And, uh, but that really wasn't the nature of our family. Family is all about just unconditional love and being together. Grew up in New York City. Uh, I was already in high school, a bit of an entrepreneur. I was sort of wheeling and dealing in all different kind of things. Yeah. And um, my interests were music and art and uh, business. And uh, as a kid in high school, um, I graduated high school at the age of 17. I spent wow. one year in Israel. Uh, on a kibbutz, which is sort of a commune. Uh, I had gone there sort of, um, I graduated high school a little bit early and I had not got, and I got into college for a January term. So I had this patch of time and I had some family that were in Israel and um, I thought it'd be kind of cool to go travel. I love traveling. Yeah. I had been traveling as a youngster. From the age of six, we, we went all over the world together. Amazing. My father took us to Guatemala. He did a lot of public health work. Uh, every opportunity he got, he wanted to be of service to other people. So we went to, uh, we lived on an Indian reservation. So uh, at the age of 11, we spent uh, four months on an Indian reservation in North Dakota. We we're doing public health work and that was cool. As a youngster, it just was, I was understanding about being of service to other people. At 13, we lived in, on a hilltop, eight hours by mule up in the hills of Guatemala, running a hospital. So, so you know what, I mean, I, I say all this to just say that my background was one about human human interaction and human being and kindness and joy and all that kind of fun, gushy stuff. Definitely. Um, I went to, after I spent a year in Israel, where I got very interested in agriculture, I came back to the States, I went to the University of Massachusetts, and I proceeded to get a degree in agriculture at UMass Amherst, and uh, one of the top ag schools in the nation, thinking that I was gonna be either a farmer or do something within the agriculture space. And I kind of realized that that really wasn't my calling. That was not going to be my future. I didn't understand the vision. Uh, although I had one originally, it didn't really pan itself out. And um, so I have an adopted brother who my father adopted during the war in the camp, who, whose parents had been killed. He was eight years old. And uh, it's a long story, but my father brought him up, sent him to America as a 13-year-old after the war. He ended up um, being introduced to a gentleman who was a major businessman and uh, so he was sort of a business mentor to me and my a brother he's um, he was just 90 uh, last week so I guess he's about 35 years older than me and uh, so he was always a mentor to me he became a very successful businessman wow. so when I realized that agriculture wasn't the path I realized that business was and he had sort of been hounding me to become a businessman and to get serious about making money and and thinking about my future. Yep. And uh, so I ended up spending the last three years of college getting a degree in international business and management. Uh -huh. and, uh, and that was cool. So I was on the five-year plan at college and I came back to New York City uh, after five years of college with, the, with these degrees. And I uh, enrolled in an MBA program uh, in international business in New York at Baruch College. 
I started trading commodities uh, with some money he had given me, actually, and I was successful doing that originally. And then, um, you know, in somewhat of a, an epiphany one night, I decided to open up a record store in New York City. It was a bit of a crazy move. I was 22 years old. I was a bit of a wild, wild kid. And I was hanging out at Studio 54 and doing wild, crazy things as people did in 1980. <laughs> and, um, and so I had met this musician who was a very famous jazz musician. And uh, we sort of partnered up and we started a record company and we went down to Bleecker Street, which is sort of a cool part of Greenwich Village in New York City, and uh, opened up a record store. And wow. it was sort of a African art gallery. It was a record store. It was modeled after a European record store. You had listening booths, you had a coffee shop. It was very cool. Wow. It was called Krona Record Gallery. And uh, all the jazz musicians in New York City at the time hung out there. I was managing a lot of the jazz clubs. And so that became my business. I, um, during college, I'd become interested in jazz music and I'd managed a bunch of bands all over Europe for three years. Wow. So already my entrepreneur sort of uh, juices were flowing and music was a big part of my life. And so uh, the store stayed open for a year. It turned out to just not be, not be my calling either. And uh, so I, I've, I've had a lot of different fun trajectories along the way. And I realized, you know, it, it never happened on the right time, but it eventually happened where when things did not really pan out in the way I really wanted them, I moved on. Yeah. You know, some people tend to stay in situations longer than they should. I, I, I may have stayed in a few situations longer. But anyway, I left that and I ended up going to West Africa. I had a friend who ran an oil company in the People's Republic of Benin. And I had sort of gotten a little bit in, into some shaky waters in New York City, and which we don't need to discuss. Yeah. And uh, it was the 80s, let's just, be, let's just say that much. And um, so I went there and I kind of honed my business skills because I, computers, it was 1983, computers were just coming out. As you can imagine, you're a young guy, yeah. but that was before computers before cell phones. And um, so Lotus 123 had just come out. It was the first spreadsheet on, on, a, on a personal computer. There were no notebooks. There was no none of that stuff. Yeah. And so I basically learned computers on the way to West Africa on a plane in 18 hours. And I showed up there and became a computer specialist <laughs> and was running the accounting for the, for the oil company. Wow. I stayed there for two years. And then I came back to New York and realized, you know, I was like, I was in mid-20s. It was time to get serious. And yeah. so my father, who was a well-respected doctor at that time, had a patient who, um, who was the uh, managing partner of a firm on Wall Street. And so he said, you know what, why don't you get a summer job down there? And my older brother had said, Wall Street seems like the place for you. You're a people person. You think on your feet. You got a high, high energy, uh, kind of a adrenaline driven guy. Yeah. And Wall Street just sounds perfect for you. So I got a summer job on May 23rd, 1985, here on the floor of the Stock Exchange. We're across the street from the Stock Exchange guys, if you're wondering. Yep. And it was a summer job as a teletypist. It didn't really matter my background, who my dad was, any of the the, the, the journey I'd taken to get here, everybody comes to the floor of the stock exchange and on Wall Street, you start at the beginning where everybody starts. Yeah. It really doesn't matter what, what, what blood you come from. And so that's what happened to me. I started as a teletypist at the time. It was one of the lowest, lowest rungs on the uh, thing because there is no training for this job, you know? And a master's in business, 
doesn't benefit you as a trader. Yeah. You know, it benefits you for a sort of an upstairs portfolio manager type of person. But being on the street, it's called the street for a reason. It's sort of a fast-paced, adrenaline-driven, you know, marketplace, auction yeah. market. That's what the floor of the stock exchange is. That's what trading is. And um, so I started down there as a teletype in 1985, and the minute I walked on the floor, I knew it was for me. The energy, the people, everything about it was just, it, it, the chaos, it just fit my personality and I felt I had arrived. Yeah. And so after three months uh, as a teletypist during the summer, I asked the company for a job, a real job, and uh, they liked me, I was good at what I did, they saw that, that this place was for me, and they hired me. And I started out as an option clerk, I became a retail clerk, I became an institutional clerk, and wow. those are the sort of the jobs that you go on your way to becoming a broker and an actual trader. But I, you know, normally the trajectory was probably a 10-year uh, uh, journey from where I started to becoming a broker. I happened to be in the right place, right time. I was good at what I did. A couple of people left, a couple of people moved on to other places. One guy got fired. And I ended up becoming a broker in two and a half years. Wow. Which was fast, fast track. It was perfect for me because I'm a fast track kind of guy. I'm impatient and um, and I loved wow. what I did. I immediately, as I said, I loved it the minute I walked down there. And you know, you're talking the 80s. You're yeah. talking the, the you know the wild wolves of Wall Street. You're talking high adrenaline, high volume, crazy, open outcry, screaming and yelling like you guys would see in the movies. Definitely. And so in 1980, October. Uh, April of 88, I got my seat on the stock exchange, which is, you know, people don't know what a seat is. I mean, they know, heard of what a seat is, but it's a badge with a number, and it is the license to trade stock on the floor of the stock exchange. I got that in April and um, of 88, and I've been a broker ever since for 32 years. It's amazing. So I'm curious to the listeners out there, starting in the 80s, what did trading look like from your aspect and POV, um, say, Logistic-wise, when you're making that trade, in contrast to today, a huge difference, uh, I, and uh, and in my opinion, unfortunate difference because I'm not a tech guy, <laughs> right? I resisted the technology that came into Wall Street and our lives in a big way. I still don't own a computer. I do have an iPhone, though. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, you have to realize that on the floor of the stock exchange, there were probably seven to ten thousand people. Uh, there were brokers and traders. There were clerks. There were backup clerks. There were market makers, there were squads, there were supervisors, there were governors. So there was a huge support staff. It was a massive marketplace, auction market, open outcry of people. Humans gathering, screaming, yelling. You've seen it in the movies, it was real. And so the environment, you have to realize everything was done on paper. There were no cell phones, no handhelds, no computers. It was pads of paper in your pocket. There was a pen, there was a beeper. There was a, uh, a tree of phones on the floor. There were booths connected to trading desks upstairs. Orders were generated upstairs on trading desks that would come down to the floor by phone. A clerk would take the order on paper, buy 100,000 shares of IBM. They would hit up a beeper. My beeper would go off. They'd wow. call me into the booth, give me 100,000 shares of IBM to buy or any number of different stocks. And then I would run out to the crowd. The crowd would be five, 10, 15 people, depending on how busy and crazy it was in that particular stock. And uh, it was an open outcry market for, you know, the only thing you could compare it to today was if you go to a uh, farmer's market and there was a, suddenly a run on food. 
yeah. you know, like there was a bunch of high high style chefs who were trying to all vie for the best tomato at the marketplace, and they were screaming and yelling and willing to pay anything for that beautiful piece of fish wow. or chicken or fish or, or, or fruit. You know, we all went out there. We represented our customers. We screamed and yelled. We we we. Um, it was wild. I have to admit, it was wild, and it was all person to person, human being, huge support staff around us, incredible adrenaline, incredible stress, yeah. and uh, everything was done on paper. Once I executed stock, whether it took me five minutes to do the order or it took me all day to do the order, the information was conveyed back to the booth. The booth would send it upstairs. People would input it into a thing, a and it became the ticker tape that you guys see all over the world now. Wow. And so that was then. And over the last 35 years, there has been a huge transition. The advent of computers and handheld computers, going from eighths and quarters down to nickels and pennies, um, going from paper to, uh, to technology, uh, mergers and acquisitions, not no need for thousands of brokers. We had 1,654 brokers back then, and probably about 5,000 different support staff. Obviously, with a computer that can do the execution of 20 brokers, you don't need 20 brokers anymore. So for me, I'm still here 35 years later, so I had to reinvent myself. <laughs> some people reinvented and some moved on. You know, there were probably 100 market-making firms. Now there are four. There used to be 1,600 brokers. Now there's probably 400. There used to be about 5,000 support staff. Now there's probably 400. So. Technology, as in any industry, has taken over in a big way. Electronic trading, eighths and quarters, no more paper. Uh, so today you don't see the, the crowds, although we do on IPOs, we do when there's crisis and circuit breakers and COVID and, mm. you know, and financial uh, disasters and whatnot, but you don't see the constant flow of human carnage that we did back then. Yeah. You know, people are able to execute from a handheld computer. Now the orders are still generated upstairs, but they come down through a computer, a BBSS system, which is then sent to my handheld computer. And then I enter my orders, depending on what algorithm I want to go into. In the old days, we didn't have algorithms. We conveyed face-to-face -face with the market maker yeah. what instructions we wanted. You should be aggressive, be 50%, go along. Those were the instructions, be a market order, get aggressive or whatnot. Now you have 100 algorithms, passive, TWAP, VWAP, 5%, 10%. I can send an order in and just set it and forget it, and it can be an order that goes around over time. So wow. there's less human interaction. There's less hands-on activity going on. Although still, here at the New York Stock Exchange, we are, in times of volatility, the most relevant, most important, and more important than ever, in my opinion, uh, human entity in the world. We're the, we're the last human marketplace, even NASDAQ, is fully electronic. The only time you'll see humans is when there's an IPO, and that's a very short-lived period of time. Yeah. But we have humans on the floor every day. We have circuit breakers. We have people who are like the pilots of a plane. They take everything off automatic pilot, and they fly the plane when we have volatility, when we have crisis, when we have markets that go up and down a thousand points at a time. Wow. And so the day-to-day -day workings of the market, the interaction by humans, the, uh, uh, the electronic execution of stock 
is incredibly different than it was in the 80s and 90s. Mm. Though we do still exist, and I believe we are as relevant, if not more relevant, than ever, because in times of crisis and volatility, algorithms can't really do anything else than they were programmed to do. So they follow the volume, they follow the time, they follow the, the hype and the FOMO and whatnot, and a human being's judgment can, will always transcend what a machine can do. Definitely. So I'm a firm believer, supporter of still having the human element involved in, in trading. Definitely. So, so I'm curious, I'm sure the listeners are as well, as a stock trader on the floor, how many shares would you say would you average on like a, a typical day? Uh, so on a typical day, you know, it's kind of different. Um, I trade, every trader on the floor that's still down here has a different trading model. Some of them are doing buy side business, sell side business. Yeah. That's, you know, hedge funds, institutions and whatnot. Some people are doing algorithmic trading. Some people are doing electronic trading. Um, I've built a trading model with a number of other people I've known over the years to trade IPOs, to trade the opening market dislocation, meaning that markets trade 24-7 around the clock, but where the stocks open at the NYSE will affect the way stocks trade throughout the world, even though we don't do the volume we used to do. Uh, I would say on any given day, I can do for anywhere from a million shares to wow. 10 million shares. Tremendous. So I'd like to conclude with this. If you could share one piece of advice to someone pursuing their goals and to trading, say a new trader, they're at home and they're learning and investing stocks, what kind of advice would you provide to them to set them up for success? So look, for the longest time, my career was in servicing the customers of the company I worked for, right? Whether, you know, it's changed over the years. I did risk arbitrage. I traded uh, regular institutional equity business. I did retail order flow. But over the last number of years, uh, my business went to this market on closed, market on open IPO uh, business model. However, I've been there for a while and I've been down there for 35 years. I've watched a lot of things. And um, what I've seen happen over the last two years is, is generational, it's pivotal, it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. What happened with the advent of free trading apps, the new retail traders, COVID, stimulus package and whatnot, the barriers to entry into the marketplace and the investment world are suddenly completely changed than they used to be. Mm. In the old days, your grandfather, my grandfather's stock market, you had to be an accredited investor before you could invest in the market. Yeah. I'm still not an accredited investor, right? I'm not somebody who, who can, uh, you know, accredited investor, go guys, go online and look up accredited investor. That's, that's um, that is somebody who uh, has a certain amount of money in the bag, who if they lose the money they invest will not affect their lifestyle for five years. There's a lot, there's a whole line of stuff that were barriers for most people, you know, all different kinds of people, people of different economic classes, people of different social classes, whatnot, people of color, people, uh, you know, who just didn't have the money and the wherewithal to be able to be an accredited investor were blocked from being in the stock market. And that's horrendous, mm -hmm. right? But what we've seen happen over the last two years is all those barriers are down. So, and then you had Robin Hood and you had, you know, T, Charlie Schwab, TD America had become free trading apps and you had COVID, everyone sheltered in place. And so what you've seen is 
this incredible influx of 40 million plus new retail traders. Yeah. In my opinion, you've all suddenly been invited to this party. And in my opinion, I think it's the greatest thing ever. You are the future of the investment community, right? It's not going to be a bunch of old Kaji guys sitting around smoking cigars <laughs> in, 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 you know, in fancy clubs. It's going to be everybody. Everybody who has an interest and excitement about investing in their future, creating generational wealth and financial independence can now get involved in the market. Now, you've got things like Wall Street Bets and Reddit and a lot of FOMO and hype and meme stocks and all that stuff yeah. going on. And that came along at the same time that COVID came along and the new retail traders and the barriers to entry being down. And so what we've seen is this, and then you had March 23, 2020, where the market sold off and basically crashed over the COVID experience. And anybody who actually bought, hit a buy button on March 23rd, watched the stock market go up for the next three months. In fact, it got back to even uh, from its crash within three months. So everybody wow. thought they had diamond hands. Everybody thought this was a get rich quick scheme. Everybody thought, you know, they didn't need advisors. They didn't need anything. They were, they were suddenly geniuses and that they could just buy everything and the stock market would keep going up. Well, what we've seen happen over 18 months or two years is that the stock market doesn't just go up, that taking financial advice from the internet is a bad thing, that stocks can go from $2 to $483, like GameStop, and right back down to $150. And if you don't know what you're doing, yeah. you will blow your account up. And we do know that the numbers are that 90% or 88% of people who are new retail traders in the game blow up their accounts within three months, which means that everybody's been invited to this party. Some people are responsible and learn how to trade and they're gonna be here for the long haul. 80% of you people are gonna to come to this party, get drunk, get sick, sit out on the corner drinking Hennessy and smoking a cigarette, really pissed off at me yeah. because I'm the suit and I didn't warn you. I didn't warn you that the shit was gonna change, That if I can use bad language, yeah. that the shit was gonna start getting crazy, which it's been getting crazy now. That markets do go up, they do go down, they do go sideways, they do go like a kangaroo. Bull market, bear market, kangaroo market. Mar stocks can go from two to 48 to 152. Stocks can go from 32 to three, right? Yeah. The internet cannot be your advisor. Hope is not a strategy for trading. I've taken it upon myself with my partner, David Green, to create an academy called Wall Street Global Trading Academy, WSGTA.com, to educate people on technical analysis. Technical analysis is the art of charting, right? It is the best defense against this kind of volatility. It involves risk management, which are stop orders, which means that if I buy a stock at 50, it may go up, it may go down. Stocks yeah. don't only go up for good reasons because they have, a, you know, Nike will go up because they've released a new sneaker, DJ Khaled's wearing it and everything's cool. Yeah. Stocks go up on hype, they go up on, on, on FOMO, they go up on internet, Wall Street, uh, Reddit craziness. They go up for all different reasons. We watched GameStop go from $2 in bankruptcy to $483 on a short squeeze and in a complete gangster attack by the Wall Street Vets community. Well, a stock that goes up 5,000% for no reason can go right back down. 5,000%. So people need to be aware that this is not Las Vegas. It is not a get-rich-quick scheme. 
that diamond hands and stocks going to the moon are an illusion and that you need to fill your toolbox with tools like technical analysis and risk management to navigate this market successfully. Yep. So I've taken it upon myself to try and educate people. I want you all that you've been invited to this party to be successful, to make money, to have fun, to take this time that we've been sheltered in place and dealing with COVID and the pandemic and free trading apps as a pivotal time in your life to learn a, a, a skill that you can take with you forever. One of our mottos is learn once, earn for a lifetime. If you learn the game correctly, you will get the most out of your winning trades, you will lose the least out of your losing trades, and you will always, this is trading, not investing. Yeah. If you're an investor, put money in the market, invest in stocks and not stuff, put your money aside, 100 bucks a week, 50 bucks a month, whatever you can afford, okay? And the markets historically all go up. Don't look at them on down days, just be in the market for whatever you can afford and be there. But if you're a trader or you're interested in trading, or you've heard that your friend made a million dollars trading Dogecoin, first of all, don't believe it. But if you're interested in trading, this is a pivotal time to make some fun money, to learn a skill, to get involved in the market. Trading is a different thing. Trading is a short-term investment, scalping some money on a day-to-day -day basis, making $50, $100 a day, $500 a week, $20,000 a year, right? So it's a matter of enjoying this, having fun in it, but learning the art of it. And whether you learn it from me or somebody else, what we do is our differentiators, we coach and mentor our students. It's important to know that you don't always win, right? Nobody got broke taking a profit. You never turn a winning trade into a losing trade. These are the mottos that you must take to this thing because it's money's a funny thing, guys. People get funny about money, and the stock market doesn't just go up. The funny thing is you can make market money on the market when it goes up and it goes down. But you need to protect your investment on a daily basis. So learn technical analysis, learn the game, fill your toolbox with tools. Definitely, Peter, thank you so much. And one more time, plug your course for the listeners so they can check it out. Wall Street Global Trading Academy, that's WSGTA.com. You can go to me on Instagram, Einstein of Wall Street. It's verified, there's a check on it. Don't look at fake accounts. You can reach out to me and DM me. I will always connect with you and I'll help you on this journey. We'll coach and mentor you going forward. It's really important that you learn the game. So join us. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.